But good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to be here. And uh, thank you for having me. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cami, Cami Bierling. Um, and my family, we've been coming here for a few years now. Um, and we've really enjoyed it. And now that we're re-emerging from the pandemic, we're kind of getting to know each other again, getting to know everybody, because life circumstances have changed, things have changed. So we've got to, you know, speak a little bit more, like touch base a little bit more, but it's good to see everyone here. We usually sit up in the balcony over here, so you may not have seen us or seen me um, that much. And during, during the pandemic, I was doing, well, before the pandemic, I was doing um, full-time school, so I wasn't here as much. And then the pandemic hit, just as I was graduating and able to come out again, and then we all went underground again. So I feel like I'm getting to know people too. So my husband is Patrick. Mr. Charisma, you probably have all met him, I'm pretty sure, right? He does a little bit of everything. He hasn't left a tall building yet, but he has jumped off a flagpole. Not so great for him at the time. And then we have a 16-year-old daughter. Oh gosh, she's 16. She's fabulous, she's intelligent, she's driving. She's a pretty good driver. But at times, I find myself sitting in the back, right, because Pat, I let Pat take over this part of the parenting, and I find myself sitting in the back and praying like a Catholic. So I'm praying to Jesus, Mary, and all the saints. I'm like, just get us there. Please, just get us there safely. And so far, she's done okay. She's done pretty well. So pretty proud of her that way. So our, oops, I went one too far. So there we go. So today we're talking about John the Baptist. And I, was, I said yes to speaking before I got the scripture. And then I got the scripture. <laughs> and I was like, are you serious? You want me to speak on this? I'm no theologian. But I guess I have to be grateful to Mark for not giving me something like Chronicles, right? So thanks, Mark. But seriously, it is a privilege and an honor to uh, share with you today. And I want to let you know that I do come to this with a counselor view. We all kind of have our bias when we read the Bible. We can't help it. Our experiences, who we are, what we've learned, we bring all that to the Bible. So that's how I come to the Bible, with a counselor's heart. And it's okay. There's universal truths, of course. But the beauty of the Bible is that it speaks to each one of us very personally. And it can reach all of us. And so if you're reading the Bible, you'll find something different than what I'll find. So I hope what you found today is helpful and, and you can take something away from it. So you can read that, but the verse I'm going to read to you, I'm going to use the Message Bible, is in Mark 1, 4 to 8. And I like the Message Bible because it's a little more story, a little more story driven. So it says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to put my glasses on. These will come on and off in my chain. Apparently, I look like my grandmother with that now. That's okay. She was a preacher, too. <laughs> so John the baptizer appeared in the wild, preaching a baptism of life, change that leads to forgiveness of sins. People thronged to him from Judea and Jerusalem as they confessed their sins, were baptized by him in the Jordan River into a changed life. John wore a camel hair habit tied at the waist with a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild field honey. As he preached, he said, the real action comes next. 
The star in this drama, to whom I'm a mere stagehand, will change your life. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. His baptism, a holy baptism by the Holy Spirit, will change you from the inside out. And we see just even in this verse, John was a different kind of person, different sort of guy, didn't really fit in. But his story actually starts much earlier, about 700 years earlier. So in Malachi 3, 1, in 4, 4 verses 5, um, he, it says, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. And his message that he would be preaching was also prophesied in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That was the message he preached 700 years before he came onto the scene. Now John's birth was also pretty miraculous. His mother Elizabeth was too old to have babies. She was barren. And her husband Zachariah was a priest. And he was visited by the angel Gabriel, actually before Gabriel visited Mary. And Gabriel told Zechariah that his wife was going to have a baby and to name that boy John, because the, the tradition in that day was to name your son after you. And so he was also told by the angel Gabriel that he will be the one, John will be the one, to prepare the way for the Messiah. So Jesus and John were relatives, cousins perhaps. In the story of John, Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to visit Elizabeth, and both pregnant women were pregnant with their first miracle babies. In the biblical story where Mary came to Elizabeth, John leapt in Elizabeth's womb at the sound of Mary's voice. John and Jesus were only a few months apart, and both were born for a very specific purpose, and they both knew it. People thought John was Elijah the prophet because Elijah, and that's who they thought would come back before the day of the Lord, and Elijah did not actually die. In the Bible, it says he was taken up into heaven. However, John denied that he was the prophet, although he did fit the bill of a prophet. And from what I understand, in reading John, he came at about a time where there was about 400 years of silence. There hadn't really been any other prophets or prophecies. And the Israelites had not heard from the Lord in that way. So imagine what it would be like for a prophet-like person wearing a camel's hair tunic, tied with a belt, living in the wilderness, eating locusts, which, by the way, he was on to something, because apparently it is the new protein powder of our day, right? And honey. So people would either think he was out of his mind or that he might be the fulfillment of the prophecies that they had actually learned about all those years ago and all of their lives. The voice of one calling in the desert, make way, make way for the Lord. It was really potentially exciting for them to see this. It was happening right in front of their eyes. So they had been waiting for the Messiah for so long, and now the prophet is here. 
And so they know that the Messiah, their Savior, will be coming soon. And we know that he did as Jesus the Christ. John's life is not an easy life. It was actually quite difficult. He lived in the desert. He preached a message of repentance. He was called the Baptist because he baptized people. And in reading about his life, theologians say that his baptism was about repentance, acknowledging their sin and the need for repentance. It was called, they termed it a purification ceremony. Whereas Jesus' baptism was one of transformation, transformation from the inside out, beginning a new life and living in the spirit. And John was the one to baptize Jesus. He didn't want to at first. He was hesitant. He's like, no, no, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, you need to baptize me for the fulfillment of scripture and all righteousness. And we know that in that moment when John baptized Jesus, that the heavens opened up and a dove descended down onto Jesus saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So both men were actually quite humble. John for taking that role of baptizing Jesus and for Jesus submitting to John to be baptized. John had his own disciples. He had a message of repentance, that we all needed to repent. And he said this to everybody, even the religious leaders, although they didn't necessarily like hearing his message, but they listened. They listened afar off. He spoke with everyone, soldiers, tax collectors, regular people of the day. And he actually even spoke out against Herod. He called out Herod. Herod was the ruler of that day. Now, Herod had married his brother's, his brother Philip's wife, okay? And John called him out on that. And oddly enough, Herod did not want to kill John. He threw him in jail, but he did not want to kill him. Theologians who write about John's life say that Herod was actually intrigued. So John spoke in a way, there was something about John that intrigued Herod. And Herod saw him as a righteous man, even feared him. And as you can imagine, Herod was someone who lived pretty much however he wanted to. He was powerful, but something made him stop and listen to John. Herod's wife, however, Herodias, was not at all happy with John, and she wanted him dead. So one fateful evening, when Herod was partying with all his buddies and pretty drunk, Herodias's daughter did a dance for him and all the guests. And Herod was really happy with this. And so in his drunken state, he's like, I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom. And she's like, Mom! She ran back to her mom, Herodias, and said, Hey, this is what Herod said. And Herodias said, Ask for John's head on a platter. That's a pretty big ask. And so she went back to Herod, and she said, this is what I want. I want John's head on a platter. And immediately it says that he was sorry. He was sorry that he had said that. He did not want to kill John. He was actually really upset. But because he had to save face in front of all his guests, he had to do it. So that evening, that night, right then, John's life ended as Herod ordered him beheaded, and John's head was literally served up on a platter 
to Herodias's daughter, who then brought it to her mother. And John's life ended then. The life of John the Baptist, it's a short life, but it's an impactful one. It contains elements of hope, faith, miracles, destiny, and tragedy. And so in reading this and thinking about, okay, what, what should I speak about, Lord? I don't know, what, do you, what should I go, get here from this? Three lessons kind of stood out to me. So the first one is he was true to who he was and who God created him to be unapologetically. He wasn't like, sorry. Like sometimes, that's my line. Everyone's like, why are you saying sorry for much? I'm like, well, sorry for saying sorry. <laughs> Maybe it's just a Canadian thing. But he was unapologetic about who he was, right? He did what God had called him to do and didn't expect God to make everything okay. And the third one is in preparing the way he walked the walk. His message was congruent for how he lived. Oops, sorry, I thought a straw might be better. Rather than choking. <laughs> so if we look at the first lesson, he was true to who he was and unapologetic, unapologetically who God made him to be. So in my line of work as a counselor, I work a lot with this. I constantly see people who are struggling to be who they are. The struggle is often between knowing who they are and wanting to be accepted for that, but then having to live under what everybody else expects them to be. We struggle with this. I know I struggled with this. First, we have to, feel, we have to fit in with our family with our parents and those expectations. And then it's our teachers. And then it's our society. And then it's our, it's our employers or it's our coworkers. It's our culture. There are so many expectations put upon us as to who we should be and how we should be acting. But a life that is not lived authentically, when we are pretending, we're actually more prone to depression, anxiety, even suicidality. And I see this every day in my office. I can actually imagine that maybe John struggled with this, right? Actually, if I can imagine Elizabeth, his mother, probably struggled with this too. I can say as a parent, like, it's hard watching your child do something that's different, that's out of the norm, right? And so I can imagine her saying, like, really, camel hair? You know, when it gets wet, it doesn't smell so good, right? <laughs> you got to eat locusts? I got some bread, some good lamb stew. It's good for you, right? No. Maybe she tried, but maybe she realized that's not who he is. And somehow she allowed John to develop and be the person he was meant to be. As individuals, we need to be brave enough brave enough to shed what others think about us and become who we are and find out what that purpose God has for our lives and live that. Uh, a book that, or an author that I really like, she's actually a researcher uh, of shame and how it affects us, is Brene Brown. 
And in her book, Braving the Wilderness, she talks about how to allow yourself to be yourself. She outlines the difference between belonging and fitting in. And in my counseling education and in my work, I realize the importance of belonging. Belonging is a felt need. It's a felt need in all of us, but belonging and fitting in are not the same thing. When we try to fit in, we mold ourselves to other people's expectations. We can actually become pretty good contortionists, right? Trying to fit in in all the different circles that we live in. We try to live up to the expectations of our church community, our teachers, our employers, our parents. Now add on top of that Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, all those places where we find great places to compare ourselves and feel like we're not living up to the standard. Fitting in doesn't mean you belong. Fitting in means you have met the acceptable parameters for that group of people. Belonging is where you can be your unique self in all of who you are and be loved for it. But the catch is, this is often by a smaller group of people, people who really know you, who really love you. We find belonging, that true sense, when we are accepted for who we are, full stop. We see this in our society, that our streets are filled with young people who've been rejected for who they are. Studies show that when children are allowed to explore and be who they are innately know that they are, they have less incidence of depression, anxiety, suicidality, and major mental health issues. When children and adolescents are rejected for who they are or suppressed, they're likely to deal with more depression, anxiety, and those major mental health issues. Contentment is found in being who you are created to be. But sometimes, as Brene Brown says in her book, being ourselves means sometimes having to find the courage to stand alone, totally alone. Being in the wilderness and being ourselves, finding ourselves. John lived in the wilderness. He found himself there. He could be himself. And I can imagine there were many times where he was misunderstood and was alone. John didn't fit the norms of the day. He didn't become a priest like his father. He didn't marry. He didn't have a regular nine to five. He lived a life that was so different to the rest of society, even to how his parents probably thought he should live or how this role should be acted out. He lived in the wilderness. He stood alone. But in that, in being himself, he had confidence in himself. He didn't cover it up. He lived congruently to himself and his purpose. And in that, he found belonging with people. John had his own disciples. He didn't need the approval of others because he knew who he was. He knew what his job was, his purpose, who was, he was created to be. And in her book, Brene Brown goes on to say, true belonging 
doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. So if we go on to the second lesson, sorry, I'm trying to see if I can see, did that change or not? I think it did. Good, okay. So the second lesson, he did what God called him to do and didn't expect God to make everything okay. So John's life was hard. We've already established that. He expected God to give him the strength and the ability to face what he needed to face. His own incarceration, living in the wilderness, being ostracized and probably ridiculed for the message that he was bringing. This part of my message feels hard to speak. One, because it can blow up our own North American, Western culture society of what a Christian is, right? Do the right thing, you'll be blessed, generally. We don't know why John lived in the wilderness or why he was on his own. Maybe he chose to live there. Maybe he was compelled to live there. The Bible, unfortunately, it's silent on that. But to me, what I see is that he, it shows that he didn't expect his life to be easy. And that's something I need to learn, that we can learn. John did all the things he was meant to do. He preached what he was supposed to preach, the message God gave him. He was living out the purpose God had for him. He lived a very austere and frugal life. But what this shows me is that we can be doing exactly what God wants us to be in the middle of his will, and it can still be very hard. I even see this in paralleled in Jesus' life. He was praying after the Last Supper, right? We know this story well. God, take this cup from me. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. And it wasn't easy. He still was not spared the difficulties and the hardness of life. So I'll admit I can't explain this. I can't. It's just something I know to be true. We don't serve a magic God. But we do serve a God whose ways are not my ways and whose thoughts are not my thoughts. If I could figure out God, there'd be no need for him. I wanted to just touch on a little myth that we tend to always say. I hear it all the time. God cannot give me more than I can handle. <laughs> right? We're all saying this all the time. And we say it to encourage people. Of course we do. But if God didn't give us things that we couldn't handle, what need do we have of him? Why do we need him? I can tell you that we can't handle things. Because in my office, I speak with people who are coping. And I, I work at a university as well. I work with a lot of believers, a lot of Christians too, and non-believers. And what I see is that people use things like eating. Eating way too much, eating way too little, exercising way too much, worrying, controlling every little thing, alcohol abuse, drugs, smoking, 
avoiding, avoiding life. These are all strategies that we use to try and help and help ourselves cope. But the truth of that is, is that when we're using those things to cope, we're not actually handling things. And we use them because life is too much right now. Life is too hard. There's so much I can't handle. Like when we lost a job that we loved as a family, lost it, had no control over it, was gone. We had no plans. That was a lot to handle. Watching a loved one who's sick and suffering. Having a tragic accident. Or being hurt beyond my comprehension and not by my choice, by somebody else. Losing a loved one before their time. All of these things, these are things we cannot handle. And that's okay. That's okay. Because where do we draw our strength from? John drew his strength from knowing who God made him to be, and that God was with him no matter what. That he was living the purpose God made him for. John relied on the strength and the comfort and the provision of God daily. He lived what God wanted him to do, and yet, he was incarcerated, he was ridiculed, and his life was cut short. He died in his early 30s. He was faithful to God, and God was faithful to him, but there are still so many unanswered questions. Like, why was his death so tragic? Why was his life cut short? Why was his life ended by somebody else's choice? These are all hard questions, and I don't have the answer. But I do know that John lived a life dependent on God. He was content, content in who he was and the message he had, and he knew that God was there for him in the hard times. And I know the Bible says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our times of pain and difficulty are blessed. What a hard concept. That's a hard concept to grasp, to think about. But it's in these difficult and painful times is where we often learn who God is in our life, where we can then reach out and be like, God, I need you. I need you to show up for me today. But it's also where we learn who we are and the strength that God can give us and how he can help us heal from that pain. The third lesson that I see in this is that in preparing the way, he walked the walk. His message was congruent with how he lived. John spoke in a way that people of that day could hear him. I mean, he ended up having the ear of Herod, even though he called Herod out. He also had tax collectors, soldiers, 
asking him questions. How can I live a better life? And he had the ear of the common people. Maybe not everyone, but a lot of people. People were able to hear his message, but he was not responsible for if they chose to listen or not. That was left up to God. This makes me ask the question, how are we preparing the way for others to be able to hear Jesus? I was listening to a podcast, and I heard um, this clinical psychologist and a researcher. Her name is Dr. Lisa Miller. She is uh, Jewish and grew up in a very spiritual home. And she does research that shows that spirituality is innate. It's built in. It's hardwired in our brain. When they did different experiments and researchers, the spirituality part of their brain would start to light up. Now, unfortunately, I, I would love to go into that a little bit more, but we don't have time, so you can Google it. But in that podcast, she actually had some pretty amazing experiences, uh, statistics, sorry. She said, spirituality is hardwired, but religion, she pointed out, is environmentally transmitted. Science has identified that in the nurturing of spirituality is a language of transcendence, a felt awareness of God. Given voice through ceremony, tradition, practice, example, basically religion. She goes on to say, it boils down to the carrier of the torch. When the carrier of truth walks the walk, the parent, the pastor, the priest, the rabbi, or imam, and when the carrier of truth walks the walk, the intergenerational transmission of spirituality through religion is profound. Tragically, she goes on to say, humans can be foibled. That's a good word, I need to use that a little bit more. And when the person does not walk the walk, the child is quick to smell hypocrisy. That is not a critique of religion, that is a critique of humans and our foibles. When someone who walks the walk of being loving, guiding, and never leaving anyone alone, basically loving your neighbor, that is the walk that sustains the transmission of religion. Children whose parents were religious and spiritual, sustained by good parenting and unconditional love, that child receives a form of religion that is 80% protective against depression. Now, when the torch is passed from grandparent to parent to child, and it is the same congruent practice, the torch received by the child is 90% protective against depression. The intergenerational transmission of the path to spiritual awareness is essential to whole person thriving, strength, resilience, and flourishing. That's some pretty good statistics. 80 to 90%. This actually makes me really excited. There's hope for our kids. There's hope for their well-being, for their mental health, for their ability to thrive. But we have to think about what's actually the message this generation needs to hear and what's the message we're sending. John spoke to the needs 
and the language of that generation that he was in. They were already primed to hear the message that the Messiah was coming. In our generation, the Messiah has come. He's here. We need to learn to speak the language and the message that this generation needs. And I can tell you from my experience in the counseling room with so many adolescents and young adults that the message they need to hear is one of acceptance and unconditional love. And I have to ask myself, are we as an older generation communicating that message to the generations coming up? This generation needs to know that they are not mistakes. They were not made wrong or that who they are is wrong. They need to know the unconditional love of God who says, I made you. I know the plans and purpose that I have for you. And that's communicated through us and our unconditional love for them. So the definition of unconditional is subject to no conditions, not subject to any conditions. So unconditional love is love not subject to any conditions. We preach about having it and giving unconditional, the unconditional love of God. But I will challenge you and me in this. Is the love that we're showing congruent to what we preach? That message, when it's congruent and when received, is 80 to 90% protective against depression and major mental health disorders. It gives them belonging when we say, I can accept you as you are. I love you for who you are. You don't have to hide from me. So what is the message we're given? How are we preparing the way for our kids and young people to meet Jesus? Maybe we need to go into our own wilderness and find out who we are and find that purpose again and be content and be content in ourselves so then we can actually give that contentment. We can act out of the contentment instead of our low self-esteem. We have to be brave enough to be ourselves. And when we can be brave enough to be ourselves, we can also show our children that it's brave enough to be themselves too. John's life was a life well lived. Maybe not by our standards, but it was about who God created him to be. He relied on God for his support, his strength, and his provision. And he did his job. He prepared the way. He spoke the message that the people were primed for, that the Messiah is coming. He did what he needed to do in his short time on earth. And he's impacted lives for so long. He's impacting our lives right now. So I hope in this that we can take something away from John's life to apply to ours today. Thank you so much for having me. And I would like to actually end with a benediction. This is from Romans 15, 5 to 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together 
you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless you today. Thank you, Kim. There's a lot to unpack there. There is. It's good. It's good stuff. And I hope as you leave today that you will process some of that. North American Christianity has uh, become not Christianity. And what Cammie spoke about today, about unconditional love to those around us, about things not being perfect but still doing it. We talked earlier about the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, doing everything he was told to do and still failed. But he did it right because God told him to do it. And so in your life, uh, maybe there's some things you're struggling with. Maybe things you're going through with what God's doing in your life. Or maybe you have a loved one that is struggling. Pray. Pray. And love them no matter what. And let God work. Because sometimes we think we have to do it all. And clearly, we cannot. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything that you're doing in our lives and what you were about to do. And as we go forward, as we work through the struggles that we have, and as we walk others through struggles that they're having, let us be loving unconditionally to them. Let us also be accepting of what you have for us and help us to understand some of these complex things as we walk through our faith in you. Bless everyone now as they go in their separate directions. Keep them safe in Jesus' name. Everyone said... Amen. God bless you. Have yourself a great week, and we will see you next Sunday.